so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would worship your holy name, that you would help us to preach with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, proclaiming that you are Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is our third of Ephesians, the fourth message on what we're calling spiritual warfare, the first message on the individual pieces of armor involved in that warfare. Verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul talks about girding your loins with truth. And so I have this big question, and that is, what is truth? In the last hundred years or so, it's become popular to say things like, well, you know, truth is relative. There really is no absolute truth. No absolute truth. But do we mean that absolutely? You see, unless it's absolutely true that there's no absolute truth, then there is some absolute truth, including the statement that there's no absolute truth, which means the statement there is no absolute truth is absolutely absurd. It's absurd. And if there's no absolute truth, then nothing is true. The, the word has no, no meaning. Some might say, well, okay, but things could be true to me. Well, even if they are, why bother telling me? For if something is true to you, there is absolutely no reason that then it would be true to me. See, if there's no absolute truth, nothing is true. And each of us is utterly alone, for there's no medium or matrix for meaningful communication, and thus no relationships, no love, no music. Lloyd Douglas, the author of The Robe, uh, when he was a university student, he lived in a boarding house. And he said that downstairs lived a retired uh, music teacher who was sick and infirmed and couldn't leave the boarding house. And every morning when Douglas came down the stairs, they would go through this little ritual. He would walk down the steps, open the old man's door and say, what's the good news? And the old man would take this tuning fork, snap it against the side of his wheelchair, hold it up and say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It'll be middle C tomorrow. It'll be a middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings off key. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. Good news. You know, all music is constructed around notes like middle C. In physics, I learned that middle C is a specific harmonic oscillation. When other notes are brought into harmony with that first note, we hear music. Music is the mathematics of whole numbers. It's the physics of harmonic oscillations in phase. Music is an absolute plethora of har harmonies built uh, upon a note like middle C. So when Otis Redding sings, Shemalema, Shemalema ding dong, uh oh, uh oh, oh, who put the ooh my my, uh oh, uh oh, uh, uh, in my smile, child. That is why, that is why, that is why, that is why you are my ooby dooby oop. Oh, he does it better. But when he does that, he's doing something, he's doing, thank you. 
When he does that, he's doing something entirely logical. Even though we can't fully comprehend the logic. Uh, we recognize it. We recognize it as, as music, as beauty, even emotion like joy or sorrow. We recognize middle C imprinted in all of those various harmonies. We recognize logic. We recognize truth. So what is truth? You know, philosophers debate that endlessly. Thomas Aquinas defined truth in terms of correspondence between your mind and a thing itself. So like your judgment. So to test the truth, we test one judgment with the next judgment. Wittgenstein pointed out that's like buying a second copy of the morning paper in order to see if the first copy of the morning paper was true. So in that scenario, you see truth is just what's normal. Truth is just what usually happens in your experience, which rather eliminates surprise and, and wonder and makes truth profoundly dull and even lifeless. So philosophers like Leibniz and Spinoza and Hegel, I don't read these guys, I just read about them, but anyway, they held versions of the coherence theory of truth, that a statement is described as true if it coheres to a system of truth. The problem is that there can be many systems of truth. We can each develop our own system of truth. So G.K. Chesterton wrote this, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. His mind moves in a perfect circle, but a very small circle. You see, your thoughts can have an inner coherence. I am a chicken, I am a chicken, I am a... And you can be utterly insane. So philosophers like William James, John Dewey, advocate the pragmatic theory of truth, that truth is what works. But the Third Reich worked for a time. Terrorism works for certain things. The devil works, and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil Something can work and be profoundly evil, insane, dull, dead. Pragmatism, coherence, correspondence, they're all at least partly true. And together are a pretty good definition of what modern man loosely calls science. For many people in our culture, the truth is that which can be proven by the scientific method. The only problem is that the scientific method cannot be proven by the scientific method. You see, we can't define truth. For if we did, how would we know that our definition is true? We can't comprehend what truth is when truth is the way we comprehend that anything, in fact, is. We can't define truth. And yet we all assume truth. Every scientist has to have faith in truth in order to do his science. Every little kid has to have faith in truth to even utter a word like dada or abba. So what's truth? And how do we put it on? Well, 
loins girded with truth is like the first step in Paul's conversation of spiritual warfare, spiritual wrestling. So let's review what we've said so far. The first week, we saw that the armor of God is a person and that all of reality is profoundly personal. Second week, we developed the idea that the devil is not a person as you are a person. Jesus said there's no truth in him, which I think means there's no life in him, which means there's no breath of God in him. He hates persons and his kingdom is a desecration upon creation. It's lifeless, insane, and evil. It's hell. The third week, we pointed out that heaven conquers hell. But for now, in space and time, we wrestle. That first week, remember, we said that reality is personal. And we talked about quantum physics. Many people assume that physicists are now saying truth is relative. But if we pay close attention, they're not saying truth is relative. In fact, they're saying just the opposite. They're saying all matter that we used to think was the foundation of kind of everything. They're saying all matter is relative to truth in you. They're saying that at least on the subatomic level, an observer determines material reality with the meaning in, in their own mind. In other words, truth in me matters more than matter. Absolutely. Isn't that incredible? And because I'm constructed with matter, it implies that someone is observing me. And if you and I exist in the same reality and therefore can relate one to another, someone must be observing us both. 1944, Max Planck, who many call the father of quantum mechanics, he said the following, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about atoms this much, there is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds um, this most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. In other words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, John, John 1. And he sustains the universe, upholds the universe with his word, Hebrews 1.3, his word. You know, a physical word is a vibration in the atmosphere. I'm sitting up with vibrations. And the vibrations carry meaning. I find it utterly fascinating that the most comprehensive theory in uh, modern physics is that uh, everything is the manifestation of vibrations of meaning on one-dimensional strings that vibrate in something like 10 dimensions of space-time. String theory. Well, string theory is just a theory. But in Genesis 1, God speaks a word and creation happens. He speaks a word and creation, God speaks and what he speaks happens. Except perhaps on the sixth day. For on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our own image. 
And yet man is not entirely in God's image, for evil is not God's image. So the Bible's untrue, or God must still be speaking. And every human heart is like the boundary of his creation, a boundary between good and evil, between what is and what is not. And everyone you know is still being created, like we're still in that sixth day of creation, still being created by the word. John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father for us, saying, sanctify them, Father, in truth. Thy word is truth. So you see, God's mind, God's reason, God's truth is the matrix of all matter that matters. <laughs> it's reality. So if we're subjected to truth, we are becoming real. And if we're hidden from the truth, we are becoming a ghost, lifeless and sane and evil, enslaved to shadows and lies, and absolutely not free. And now that's surprising to the modern mind because the modern mind has defined freedom as the freedom to determine your own truth, which is freedom from truth, which means that this is a perfect picture of freedom. Is she free? She's off structure. She's detached, unrestrained, untethered. She's the Lord of her own universe, free of all constraint, free of all relationships, free of, of life, free of sound. There's no music in empty space, the dark abyss. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial light, I saw Satan dancing with delight the day the music died. Remember that old song? Several years ago on a Friday, late in the afternoon, I walked into the hallway at church and met a man sitting there that looked really confused and rather undressed, and, and I said, can, can I help you? And he said, a pair of pants would be nice. And I said, my, my goodness, uh, what happened? He said, well, I drove out here from Michigan, and I had a religious experience, and so I parked the car, took off all my clothes, ran around the woods naked for two days. You know how it is. <laughs> and then he said, well, when I got back to my car, my pants were gone. 
I said, oh my goodness, I, I, we'd like to help you. I, gosh, if there's just, a, and he said, a pair of pants would be nice. So anyway, I got in the car, we drove to Evergreen Outreach, got him a pair of pants. On the way back, I remember I kept asking him questions, trying to somehow connect with this guy. Uh, finally, I said, well, look, would you like some money? He turned, he, he wouldn't answer my questions. So I thought, money, maybe that'll do it. Would you like some money? I remember he turned, he looked at me, and he went like this, shh, you asked too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> so I dropped him off in his own universe. You see, he was free like that astronaut is free. He was untethered, unrelated, and insane. Perhaps he really didn't need to gird his loins with pants. <laughs> he needed his loins girded with truth. So here's my question. Who's more free? The astronaut played, played by Sandra Sandra Bullock in the movie Gravity, floating completely unrestrained, unconstrained, unbound, ungirded in empty space, the astronaut or Becky, three-year-old Becky. Who's more free, the astronaut or Becky dancing with her grandpa? It's one of my favorite pictures. Song about 1994, at the Trail Dust Steakhouse, Becky is dancing with my dad, and she's almost entirely restrained. She's constrained uh, by my father's hand, a room full of stinky, sweaty people, and even by music. She's learning to dance. So, who's free? The astronaut or Becky? And what's the truth? And how do we gird our loins with it? Well, let's read our text. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Marcus Bart argues that that should be translated the splendid armor of God because it refers to the character of the armor and not simply that it's a complete set. Therefore, take up the splendid, amazing whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Perhaps that's any day that's infected with evil. Perhaps that's the sixth day of creation, and this is the sixth day of creation, like we've talked about before the seventh day, when we are finished, completed in God's image. Take up the splendid, amazing armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, accomplished all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say fight, therefore. Using the armor of God, but just having gotten dressed, stand. I mean, it's like once the armor is on, the armor does the fighting. And that's some pretty splendid, amazing, amazing armor. It kind of reminds me of this old movie. Jimmy Tong is an awkward, unsophisticated servant of an absolutely sophisticated and splendid secret agent man. One day, he's rummaging around in the closet. Welcome to the tactical uniform experiment. And he finds the secret agent tuxedo. new user. Mapping user's neurological structure. Activate wristwatch for desired function. 
turn them. Okay, show me. Uh oh. Caution demolition mode. The tuxedo will consider any object a target and act to destroy it. saying that the splendid armor of God must be something like that splendid tuxedo. Because when non-splendid Jimmy Tong puts it on, he can fight like Jackie Chan. And he can, he can dance like John Travolta. It's like the suit is alive and he's just invited along for the ride. Like good works prepared beforehand that he might walk in them, dance in them, fight them. Well, Paul writes, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. More literally, having girded your loins with truth. In, in that day, men wore like a belt or a, a leather girdle around their loins, their hips, and uh, held their tunic to their body. And when they needed to work, they would gird up their tunic, tuck it into the belt so that their legs were free. A Roman soldier also wore a girdle, and on that girdle hung uh, a whole lot of his, his weapons and that girdle held his tunic to his body and when he was preparing to fight, first thing, he'd gird up his tunic to free his legs so that they would be free to fight. He would be free to fight. I mean, maybe you haven't noticed this, but almost every time I get up to preach, I gird my loins. And that's because when I turned 50, my butt like miraculously disappeared. And, and if I don't gird my loins, tighten my belt, my pants can drop down to my ankles. I'll get all tangled up in my ankles. I won't be free to preach the word. Well, anyways, I'm not always girded up. Do you know why? Because it's uncomfortable. If you wear a girdle, you know that. It's, un it's uncomfortable. Sometimes the truth can make you uncomfortable, even if it sets you free. Well, Paul writes, having girded your loins with truth, and we've been asking, what is truth? On the night that he was handed over for crucifixion, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the morning, Pontius Pilate questioned him, saying, what is truth? And Jesus gave no answer. Perhaps he gave no answer because he is the answer. And he was giving himself. What answer could Jesus give that Pontius Pilate would believe? Or that we would believe? And if Jesus, the person, is the truth. The question, what is the truth, is rather unanswerable. For a who is not a what. And the truth is a who, not a what. And Jesus did not say, I am true. I think that's what we assume that he said, but he didn't. He didn't say, I am true, as if he was defined by some other truth. He didn't say, I am true. And he did not say, I am a truth. 
as if he was one of many truths. Jesus said, I am the truth. Well, if Jesus is the truth, you see, that literally changes everything. First of all, we don't create truth. Truth creates us by observing us. So to get real and be creator is not a matter of creating a self with works. When you create yourself, you create a false self. To be created is to be observed. It is to confess your false self, expose your actual self to the light of truth. It's to confess your sins and trust God's word of grace, who is Jesus, the light of the world. We don't judge truth. We certainly don't judge the truth because what? The truth judges us. We don't test the truth. That means the truth tests us. Of course we can't define the truth because the truth is defining us. We don't create truth. Truth creates us. And secondly, we don't possess truth. You don't own Jesus like mammon, like a prostitute. You know, Israel was constantly tempted by that lie. And when the church became a principality and power, she embraced that lie as if truth were a commodity, not a who, but a what. And, and science grew out of the church. And now people that worship science think they possess the truth, and they'll, so they'll say, well, we have the truth, <laughs> and you don't have the truth. And then uh, we Christians, a lot of Christians say, oh, yeah? You don't have the truth, and we do have the truth, we got the Bible. And now Jesus said, scripture can't be broken. We do have the Bible and scripture can't be broken. So the Bible um, testifies to truth because scripture can't be broken, it testifies to truth, but the Bible also testifies that nature or creation also testifies to truth. That's called science. But neither creation nor the Bible testifies saying, I am the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the truth. There's one truth. And Jesus is the truth. And that must mean any truth is Jesus. And Jesus is the truth in anything. All truth is God's truth and his name is Jesus. He is the word that created all things and sustains all things. John 1, 9, he is called the true light that enlightens all men, all people, all persons. The true light that enlightens all persons. So we don't own the truth. So when we preach the gospel, we have no business saying stuff like this. We got the truth and you don't got the truth. Instead, we ought to preach like Paul to the Romans saying... The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach, the word Jesus. Or preach like Paul in Athens, Acts chapter 17. God is actually not far from each one of us, he says to the pagan philosophers in Athens. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets, your philosophers have said, for we, we are indeed his offspring. 
You see, Paul believed that Jesus, the truth, arrived in Athens long before Paul set foot on the shores of Greece. He didn't bring Jesus to Athens like a possession. He just pointed to the truth already in Athens and said, I know his name. Now trust in his name. What you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Not what, but who. His name is Jesus. So when a scientist worships truth, but does not know what truth is, say good news. What you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. His, his name's Jesus. When a Muslim sees a sunset and says, it's beautiful, it's true, well, then you can say, yes, it is. And you, my friend, recognize Jesus. When a Buddhist says, matter does not matter, but only truth and love, say, wow. You know the truth. And did you know his name is Jesus? But don't preach the gospel of grace with arrogance. No, you're not preaching it. You don't possess the truth. You surrender to the truth, for the truth has possessed you. See, we don't comprehend the truth. When anyone, Christian, Buddhist, or a scientist, discovers truth, what's going on? God is saying, hello. <laughs> we don't comprehend truth. All truth is revealed truth. So theologians talk about natural revelation and special revelation, but it's all revelation, for we, we really can't comprehend the truth. In other words, we can't capture Jesus. Did you think that? We can't capture Jesus and nail him down. <laughs> well, if by some outrageous miracle we could, you see, it would only be because he led us. He said, no one takes my life from me. I freely lay it down. If we captured Jesus and nailed him down, it would only be because he led us, and that itself would be a revelation. Actually, it's the greatest of all revelations. He let us capture him, that he might capture our hearts, revealing that God is absolute love, and he is God's word of relentless, indefeatable grace. Now, you may need to contemplate this, this a bit, but if we think we comprehend the truth, like fruit that we just pluck off of some tree, if we think we comprehend the truth, we crucify Jesus and comprehend that we are sinners, trapped alone in death, insanity, and evil where there's no music for we just crucified the truth. <laughs> We just crucified middle C. You know, preachers like to preach about satanic music and the music in hell. There's no music in hell. Revelation 18, 22. And the sound of harpers and minstrels and flute players and trumpeters shall be heard in thee no more. Satan hates music. There is no music in hell, unless truth were to descend into hell. <laughs> and then maybe there'd be like a doorway in hell. Well, anyway, if we think we comprehend the truth, 
What do we do? We manipulate the truth. We begin to twist the truth. And we end up crucifying the truth. But, but if the truth is resurrected truth, that is living truth, the truth that we thought we comprehended rises from the dead and comprehends us. The good we thought we possessed possesses us. Jesus Christ and him crucified captures our hearts. We comprehend that God is grace and he has comprehended us. That God is grace because he has comprehended us. Comprehended us so we would comprehend. Albert Einstein, Max Planck's good buddy. Remember Max Planck from the start of the sermon? Albert Einstein heard of him. Anyway, he said this, the eternal mystery of the world, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is its comprehensibility. We ought to say, yeah, Dr. Einstein, you're right. The eternal mystery is grace. And God's word is grace. At the end of his life, Einstein said this, now I see that the only question is, is the universe friendly? I have begun to discover its physical meanings, but the question that haunts me is, is it friendly? In other words, is truth friendly? I wonder if anyone ever said to Albert Einstein, hey, Albert, did you know that Jesus said, I am the truth? Which means truth died for you, that you could comprehend the truth and be comprehended by the truth. Albert, truth is the word of love and God is love and God is like insanely friendly. God's word is Jesus and he's just like dying to make friends. He's friendly. So why do you hide from truth? Why do we hide from truth? Now the question is not theoretical, it's very practical. Isn't it because we fear that the truth is not our friend? <laughs> that the truth is not good? But if Jesus is the truth, just look at him. The truth is our friend. The truth is our friend. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. The truth is good. The truth is beautiful. Jesus is the truth and the truth about us. He's the truth about you. The true you. And the true you is always more beautiful. Always gooder. Good, you know, in the Bible often means beautiful too. The, the true you is always more beautiful than the, than the false you. Now, if you're a Christian, I think you know this about other people. But you struggle to believe it for yourself because you're proud of yourself. You know, when I've prayed with people and heard their honest confession, I'm always surprised at how hard they work to hang on to the false self in order to hide the true self when the true self is so much more beautiful than the false self. You, you know, I think Jesus is so attracted to that, that naked, authentic, genuine self standing at the back of the temple that doesn't lift his eyes, beats his chest like in Luke 18 saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. But Jesus doesn't even know doesn't even recognize that false self, 
the Pharisee that stands alone, looks at the others and prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like this other man, a sinner. But I fast, I tithe, I do good deeds, I make myself good. But the truth is good. And the good makes us. Well, if Jesus is the truth, then the truth is good. And the truth is the way. The only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. So the truth isn't just a destination. That's how we treat it, like this thing out there that we'll go find and we'll go get. The truth is not just a destination. The truth is the way. Maybe I can say it this way. You can't arrive at the truth without being truthful. We have a word for that, honest. You can't arrive at the truth without being truthful. Nothing has made me this more clear to me than what we have loosely been calling spiritual warfare. I remember one of the very first times I saw a demon manifest in a person where there was no doubt, holy crap, this is what I'm dealing with here. I was with my friend Andrew, and, and immediately I remember we said to this person, wait right here, and we ran in the other room and started confessing our sins one to another. <laughs> Saying, have mercy on me, O oh Lord, I am a sinner, I'm a sinner. You know, I think that's why I love my friend Andrew Trawick so much, because he's let me see the real Andrew, the authentic Andrew, the sinner Andrew. He's let me observe Andrew. Well, in spiritual warfare, I learned to be honest. It's absolutely uh, foundational. We must get dressed in truth, and truth makes a way. Truth is the way, time and time again, the most outrageous, crazy circumstances, feeling entirely out of control when demons or even Satan appear to be in total control, I've learned to be truthful and just pray, Jesus, help me, I don't know what to do. And it's like the Holy Spirit asked me, Peter, what's the truth about you, about her? about this situation, about scripture. Peter, where's the truth? Look around, where's the truth? Now step into that truth. And I step into the truth, claim the truth, and then he asks, now Peter, look again. Where's the truth? Step into that truth. Now look again, where's the truth? Step into that truth. I found that we rarely get a map. A map is a thing. We only get the next step. We look for the truth and follow the truth, which is just the same as saying we look for Jesus and follow Jesus. And sometimes that even happens in, in visions where Jesus appears and walks you, you through something. And yet, you see, it's also happening when you follow the truth because Jesus is the truth. The truth isn't a map. The truth is a person, not a what, but a who, and he is the way. Not only the way to cast out freaky weird demons and crap like that, but the way to everywhere that's anywhere. Uh, the way to raise your kids, the way to love your wife, the way to write a sermon, the way to the new creation, the way to life, the way home. Jesus is the truth, and the truth is the way. I don't think I'll ever forget what three-year-old Becky said to me. I think I've shared it with you several times before. 
because it's profound how to three-year-old Becky, what she shared with me when I was returning home from a mission trip with my dad. I remember she ran up to me at the airport back in the days when they could do that. She ran up to me in the airport and she just jumped all over me and she said, oh, daddy, 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 I was so afraid that you would get lost. And then I remembered that you were with your daddy and so you couldn't get lost. <laughs> the truth is the word of your daddy. And the truth is the way. So the moment you sense that you've lost your way, confess yourself. Get honest and seek the truth. And then you're on the way. You're in the way. Not in the way of the way, but actually in the way. You're exactly where you're supposed to be because the truth is the way to the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is relationships of truth. Ask any biologist or doctor and they'll tell you that. It's the dance of love and God is love. So we can't comprehend the logos of God. We can't comprehend the matrix of the mind of our maker. We can't even comprehend music. And yet, we can dance to it. We can be comprehended by it, possessed by it, created by it, controlled by it. And when we're controlled by it, we're free. A dance is perfect order and glorious freedom. Life is the dance of love. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how can we possibly know the truth? Only because the truth chose to know us. Because the truth became flesh. Because middle C became flesh. We wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a, in, a, in a food trough. He came to us, loved us, died for us, revealing to us that he is good. So we would surrender to him and begin to dance. You see, truth is all around us, like music in a great dance hall. And then the music takes on flesh and asks us to dance. Because we're each a little like three-year-old Becky. We hear the music and we want to dance, but we don't know how to dance. And we're kind of afraid to dance. And then the music takes on flesh. Someone we know who knows us starts to dance. Grandpa starts to dance. I can still picture him doing this in my mind's eye. He starts to dance. He claps his hands and he says, Becky, Becky, come here. Come dance with me. And then we dance. Constrained by truth and love and absolutely free. Jesus said, if you abide in, abide in my word, the music, you are truly my followers and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So St. Paul wrote, gird your loins with truth. I don't think that means that we have to know a bunch of, of truths. 
Now, that's good, and that can be really helpful, but I don't think we have to know a bunch of truths. The Pharisees knew a, a, a bunch, they knew plenty of things anyways, they call them truths. We don't have to know a bunch of truths, but we must be known by the truth. We must surrender to the truth. Like three-year-old Becky surrendered to the truth and began to dance. Satan hates music and he refuses to dance. Jesus is the Lord of the dance and he's teaching you his music. He's taking your hand and teaching you to dance. And in this fallen world, it's a war dance. And so on that night that he was handed over, that night that he said, I am the truth. The truth took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take it by the hand. Eat it. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Take it and drink it. Gird your loins with truth. And so, Father, we need to confess to you that we have hated truth. That's a bit terrifying for us to confess because, Lord God, your word is truth. But we have hated truth. Lord God, you know us. You know we're terrified of truth. According to Scripture, that's why we wear clothes, even on hot days. <laughs> terrified. We run from truth. We hide from truth. And then, Lord God, when the truth catches up to us, we try to manipulate truth. We, we twist truth. We claim to have contemplated or con uh, comprehended truth. That, that we own the truth. Lord God, we crucify the truth. We sin. And then, Lord God, we see that Jesus is the truth. And he was chasing us to set us free. Lord Jesus, we, we see you. We begin to see you. And Lord, Father, we thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and you send his spirits into our hearts, teaching us how to dance to the rhythm of your kingdom, the matrix of your mind, that you would set us free and create us in your image. So we confess to you, Father, ourselves, and we pray that you would teach us, Lord God, to dance. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so the whole world is running from truth, running from the truth. The principalities and powers of this world don't like the truth. But no matter which direction they're running, no matter where they're running, I think everybody has to end up here, in sight of the truth, 
at the feet of the truth and come to the realization that Jesus is the truth and that they have crucified the truth. That's called judgment. But you're already here. And look, the truth is your friend. He's friendly. There is no greater friend than this, the one that lays down his life for you. So you don't need to run from the truth. But you can, would you just put the truth on? Gird your loins with truth and then look for the truth. And now maybe you'll have a little bit of courage to follow the truth, wherever the truth goes. Because you see, the truth is the way. The truth is everywhere that's, is the, is the, is the way to everywhere that's, that's anywhere. But, but now I should tell you, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell, chained to the wall. The Roman authorities don't like the truth, but the truth is the way to everywhere that's anywhere. So you may speak the truth and your boss may not like it. You may speak the truth and the principalities and powers will kick you out, but don't worry. That those places just lead to nowhere and you're on your way to the new creation everywhere that's anywhere. So may you have courage to follow the truth. May you be honest because the truth is your friend. He's your Lord and nobody is more beautiful. Nobody's better than him. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and be free. Amen?